0: Welcome to the latest episode of Big Screen Batman, released through Bureau 42, I'm your host, Blaine Deller. In our continuing attempt to go through every big screen edition of Batman to celebrate his 75th anniversary, we've actually added one film in which Batman does not appear at all, and that is Catwoman, originally released on July 23rd, 2004. So this is about seven years after Batman and Robin had come out and not performed up to the expectations that most people had for it. Whether it's fans, filmmakers, critics, by and large, the public was disappointed with that film. We went through why that was a couple episodes ago. They were still trying to get a Batman franchise off the ground. So Michael Uslan is a huge Batman fan. He'd actually acquired the film rights to Batman in 1979, and it took him 10 years to get a Batman project onto the screen. And that first success in getting it on the screen was the first Tim Burton film. Well, to this day, he still retains the feature film rights to Batman. Now that Warner Brothers owns DC, he's tied into using Warner Brothers for any of those releases, but given how much money Batman has made for Warner Brothers over the years, they're pretty open to talking Batman. Following Batman and Robin, though, Warner Brothers was pretty much ready to give up on the property. That was in the late 90s. And then Blade happened. And Blade wasn't a colossal hit. But it did perform well above expectations, and it was a Marvel Comics property. But then again, it felt more like a vampire hunter, it's easy to write it off as not really the superhero thing, it's more the vampire kick that was going on at that time. And then came Fox's X-Men in the year 2000, which was a very clear financial success. Then we had Spider-Man, directed by Sam Raimi, which was also a big hit. So Warner Brothers was willing to get its feet back into the superhero pool. And they had a couple of ideas going. One was an adaptation of Batman Year One. That could have happened. There's the Chris Nolan films, which were the ones that eventually got made that we'll start discussing next month. And while they were bouncing back and forth between those, they did end up approving a film based on Catwoman. Now, Michael Uslin had the rights to Catwoman as part of the Batman rights, but he wasn't greatly involved. So my understanding is they essentially put his name in the credits and cut him a check to use the character, and that's about as far as his involvement went. The Catwoman we see in the 2004 film does not really resemble the Catwoman from the comics. The headdress is somewhat similar to some of the cat-themed cowls that have been used in the comics, but in the comics, Catwoman is Selina Kyle. She's been Selina Kyle since 1940. character hasn't always been prominent. For example, in the 1950s, there really were no female villains unless they were being influenced by a man. So she didn't really have a role in that, and they just didn't use her. So there's no other Catwoman. Catwoman just wasn't on the page. Catwoman has appeared in a few different films already. This is actually her third big screen appearance. It was Selena Kyle, sort of, in the 1966 Batman, even though she would put on the French accent to take on that role and considered Catwoman to be her real name when she was young at one of the thugs in the restaurant. And then, again, in Batman Returns, she was definitely Selina Kyle, although she had a much different history from the Selina Kyle in the comics as we saw in Batman Year One. Still, this Catwoman is very different. This Catwoman is Patience Phillips, and she doesn't start off as a cat burglar, who is the traditional Catwoman role in the comics, a character with no superpowers, just a whole lot of skill. I wonder why they were going this route, because it is a lot more totemic. They took that imagery of the cats surrounding Catwoman with Michelle Pfeiffer in Batman Returns and really ramped it up to the point where she is basically told she is not the first Catwoman in history. There's a picture of Michelle Pfeiffer in the photos, although not a Lee Merriweather, when she's seen the Catwoman through history. But this is definitely a supernatural character. She gains night vision. She gains heightened agility and basically a psychological disorder, like a mild version of MPD, in which Patience Phillips and Catwoman are almost two personalities, but they can largely remember what the other has done, and they, it's more of a shift in tone and letting instinct take over, rather than a complete changeover between personas. And looking back on it, the biggest superhero movie up to this point had been Spider-Man. Daredevil had also come out not well received, we'll talk about that next year, but we did get a very successful Spider-Man film, which makes me wonder if the people who are looking to bring Catwoman to the screen and have a message of female empowerment so it's not just the men in the tights, but have strong female lead characters in the acting roles, which is something that's very lacking in Hollywood, you know, try to draw inspiration from what's been successful. This came out while Joel Straczynski, or J. Michael Straczynski, as he is better known to fans, was still writing the Spider-Man comics. And in his run of Amazing Spider-Man, he posed a question. Was the spider able to give Peter Parker abilities because the spider was radioactive? Or was the spider just trying to give the abilities to Peter Parker before the radiation killed it? You know, would Peter have gotten the spider powers from that spider with or without the radiation? And that's where you bring in the idea that Spider-Man is actually an animal totem. And that's why he's got so many animal-themed villains. They recognize the true totem instead of the false totem, and they're drawn to him to go after him. It was a big part of the Straczynski run and it's being echoed in the Spider-Verse event that's coming up right away. They seem to have taken that idea into this Catwoman and made her a totem of the cats. And I would wonder why that was happening if I didn't look at the comics and look at the history. They've got the biggest superhero film in recent memory. Well, why not look at those superhero comics for additional inspiration and try to reproduce what works there? I think that's what's been done here. And frankly, even though that's a large departure from the character in the comics, I don't know if I would accept that in a Catwoman-branded film, but the idea could work if it's properly implemented. Turns out that's a pretty colossal if. There are two reviews that I distinctly remember from when this movie first came out in 2004, and those two give you an executive summary of what the Catwoman film was like. One is from Roger Ebert. His review wrapped up by saying the director, who's known only as Pitoff, was probably born with two names, and that if he ever gets the chance to direct a film again, he should probably use the other one. The second review that stands out in memory is one from a local paper. It was published in the Edmonton Journal. Unfortunately, I don't remember the name of the actual review writer. Had I known I was going to be podcasting about it 10 years later, I would have made a note. But in his review, he basically says that they've done the impossible. They've taken Halle Berry, covered half of her in skin-tight black leather, and left the other half entirely uncovered and still managed to make a movie that is incredibly difficult to watch. That's what we have here. So, Pitoff has been working in the film industry for years. His earliest credits go back to 1991. This is his second directorial credit out of four, and one of those four has not been released. Prior to this, there was Video CQ, that was 2001 this came out in 2004 fire nice in 2008 and make known on every sound is in post production scheduled for release later this year 2014 he essentially did not have the experience or background necessary to put this together the closest experience i can see in his resume is doing the visual effects for alien resurrection which is an action movie that I felt didn't really work as an action movie for reasons we'll talk about probably in the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament podcast when we get to that title. He was born Jean-Christophe Comar. I don't know why he changed his name, or at least why he changed it before this movie came out. But I think ultimately what happened here is that he was following the French tradition. He was born in Paris, France. And if you go back through a lot of film history... The French films are largely about conveying social themes and messages and dealing with that, and not so much about telling the entertaining story here and now. It's a focus on the deeper meanings, rather than the surface. And I don't think, at least at this point in his career, Pitoff was ready to handle both. He was trying to do a good action story with a new superhero, while at the same time conveying a particular social message. And because he wasn't ready to do both, he failed at both. Although I think he actually did better with the deeper meanings and the themes than he did with executing the story itself. We'll get into that a bit later. So now, as far as the cast is concerned, again, trying to reproduce the recent successes, they bring in Halle Berry, who'd been playing Storm in the X-Men films, which had been very popular up to this point. She'd already won the Oscar for Monster's Ball, She'd been in Die Another Day as Jinx, which was supposed to be her first attempt to launch her own franchise as an action star, eventually ended up in Catwoman, and of course has gone on to a fairly well-known career after that. So she was a pretty reliable quantity up to this point. Now the male lead in this is Benjamin Bratt. He gets second billing, and that's because he probably is the second most prominent character in the film, but this is largely on Halle Berry. The second billing is very much a co-star, you know, it's more of a supporting role then a starring role. Now, Bratt's career goes back to Juarez in 1987. He showed up in Police Story Gladiator School, Night Watch, Nasty Boys, both the movie and the TV series, Bright Angel, One Good Cop, Demolition Man, Clear and Present Danger, The River Wild, Exiled, Homicide, Life on the Streets, The Next Best Thing, Red Planet, Miscongeniality, Traffic, Pinero, Abandon, an episode of Frasier, The Woodsman. He was definitely a known quantity up to this point. Following this, there was Thumbsucker, The Great Raid, E-Ring, Life in the Time of or, sorry, Love in the Time of Cholera, Andromeda Strain mini-series, The Trucker, The Mission, The American Experience, The Cleaner, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, 95 episodes of Law and Order, which is probably what he's best known for now, 36 episodes of Private Practice, few of Modern Family, 24. So he was definitely a known quantity. Now he had been up for the role of a male lead in Basic Instinct 2. Rumor has it that he was denied that role because Sharon Stone didn't want to work with him. She felt he wasn't a talented enough actor. That actually came a couple of years after this film, which makes me wonder when she got picky with her career. Sharon Stone plays the villain in this. Her acting career starts in 1980 as Pretty Girl on Train in Stardust Memories... She went on to do Guest Spots in Silver Spoon, Bay City Blues, Remington Steel, The All new My Camera, Irreconcilable Differences, Magnum P.I., T.J. Hooker, Police Academy 4, Cold Steel, War and Remembrance, Total Recall was probably her first prominent role, even if it wasn't all that large a part, it was an important part. Her breakout role is certainly Basic Instinct. She followed from there into Sliver, Last Action Hero, Intersection, The Specialist, The Quick and the Dead, Roseanne, Casino, Diabolique, Last Dance, Sphere, The Mighty, Ants, Gloria, The Muse, The Sissy Duckling, Simpatico, If These Walls Could Talk Too, Picking Up the Pieces, Beautiful Joe, Harold and the Purple Crayon, She's the Narrator, Cold Creek Manor, The Practice, A Different Loyalty, Then She Did Catwoman. Before going on to Higleytown Heroes, Will and Grace, Broken Flowers, Basic Instinct 2, Huff, Bobby, If I Had Known I Was a Genius, When a Man Falls, Democracy, The Year of Getting to Know Us, $5 a Day, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, God's Behaving Badly, and she's got a few other movies in production. Lambert Wilson plays her husband in the film, and he's not as well known as the others. He's got 105 credits, also still running. His do go back to 1977. Looking at his career, there's a lot of French films, which is probably why we weren't as familiar with him, and Pitoff chose him. Looking at these, there's simply a lot of movies that are not terribly familiar to the North American audiences, but which would have been very familiar to Pitoff and the rest of his crew, having come originally from France. The first major North American films I can find on his credits were The Matrix sequels as Merovingian, and then... He also did Babylon AD, Of Gods and Men, and, again, a very productive French career. We also have Frances Conroy in the film as sort of a mentor character to Halle Berry, another woman with a lengthy list of credits including 321 Contact, the 1980s Twilight Zone, New Heart, Hill Street Blues, Remington Steel, Billy Bathgate, Scent of a Woman, The Adventures of Huck Finn, Cosby, Law & Order, Stark Raving Mad, Made in Manhattan, Six Feet Under, Desperate Housewives. So she's had a fairly respectable career both before and after this. She was Loretta Stinson on nine episodes of How I Met Your Mother. She's in American Horror Story, Royal Pains. Alex Borstein is sort of the plucky sidekick, the one who's supposed to be in there largely for comic relief. And her career has been going since she appeared in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers in 1993 as well as various other iterations of the Power Rangers franchise. Frasier, Friends, Three South, Bad Santa, the Lizzie McGuire movie. So her biggest role, as far as the audience for Catwoman is concerned up to this point, was probably Bad Santa, but even that she's as Milwaukee mom with a photo, so it's not a very prominent role. Following that, and actually preceding that, she had roles as a couple different characters on Gilmore Girls. She was in Drawn Together. Drop Dead Gorgeous in a Down to Earth Bombshell sort of way. In the Thick of It, Mad TV, Dinner for Schmucks, Hot in Cleveland, Robot Chicken, The Cleveland Show, Shameless, Family Guy. So a number of voice acting credits. One of the more recognizable faces these days, although not then, is Christopher Heyerdahl. He's got a tiny little role in this movie. He's the noisy neighbor across the street, the one who's credited only as Rocker. If we look through his credentials, he goes back to 21 Jump Street, Are You Afraid of the Dark, Highlander, The Final Dimension, Coyote Run, Silent Trigger, Lassie, Call the Wild Dog of the Yukon, Hemoglobin, Peacekeeper, Affliction, Requiem for Murder, Babel, The Secret Life of Jules Verne, La Femme Nikita, The Killing Yard, Just Cause, John Doe as Dr. Hillerman, Andromeda, Stargate SG-1, Jeremiah, The Chronicles of Riddick, Kingdom Hospital, then he appears in this film... He would go on to be in Blade Trinity, Into the West, The Collector, Saved, Stephen King's Dead Zone, Psych, Whistler, The Invisible, Sanctuary, he's Zorel in Smallville. He was Todd the Wraith in several episodes of Stargate Atlantis, he's Alistair in Supernatural, he appears in the Twilight Saga as Marcus, an episode of Human Target, few episodes of Caprica, few episodes of True Blood as Dieter Braun the new Nikita series in addition to the old series, Beauty and the Beast, Hell on Wheels. He is a character actor with a very distinctive look. There are a number of actors that we'd notice. There's Peter Wingfield, who's been in X-Men 2 as well as others. There is even a recognizable quasi-cameo that's uncredited. The basic storyline of the movie is essentially about evil makeup. Sharon Stone is the former spokesmodel and co-owner of a of a cosmetics company, Her husband is the president of the company, Sharon Stone is being pushed out and replaced with a younger actress to be the face of the makeup. And this makeup has some seriously detrimental side effects that somehow the FDA has missed. They're aware of it, but they're going onto market anyway because they've invested so much money in it, they don't want that investment to go to waste. While they're going through this and reviewing the files and talking about the effects it has, there's a face of a particular model on screen. And this model is actually an actress who is not billed, but who is easily recognizable. Her name is Missy Peregrim. I first noticed her when she was one of the leads in Black Sash, which was an ensemble cast. Since then, she had a guest spot in Smallville, a run as the perception-changing individual near the end of the first season of Heroes. She was the female lead throughout both seasons of Reaper. She's currently starring as the lead of Rookie Blue. Kind of started off with an ensemble cast feel, but really, these days, it's her show, currently in Season 5. So she's got a very recognizable face. It's kind of hard to miss her. And hers is the face that you see with the long-term scarring when you stop using this addictive makeup she's not credited, I think she might be okay with not being credited in this film. Some of the issues with this film are coming from having rushed scripts. There are a number of people who are credited with the script for this film. Now, the writing credits in the Internet Movie Database include story credits for three people, Teresa Rebeck, John Brancanto, and Michael Ferris. Now, John Brancanto and Michael Ferris are credited for the screenplay with an ampersand, with John Rogers following the word and. Now, John Rogers has gone out publicly and discussed Catwoman in a number of areas, and quite frankly, in fact. Turns out there were a lot more screenwriters than you see given credit here. There were a number of people who did passes. Some of the reasons that they weren't given writing credits were just because in order to receive a writing credit, you have to be a Writers Guild of America member. So some of these people are non-union members because they haven't gotten enough work that is truly their own to meet the entry qualifications, because they do have an entry standard for the WGA, as one would typically expect. So a lot of what you see on screen is not what John Rogers wrote, and there are other problems in terms of getting it to the screen. As I said, Pitoff was trying to tell a story and tell themes and go through it, and a lot of this is about female empowerment and putting women first. Now, I talked last year about Supergirl and how I felt that handled that same theme. Of female empowerment in a pretty poor fashion. In Supergirl, they decided to really show how great women were by just surrounding them with utterly incompetent men. So it wasn't so much about building women up as it was tearing men down. This movie is also about female empowerment, but it handles it the right way. Benjamin Bratt is one of the two prominent male characters. He's an extremely capable police officer. In fact, he can climb stairs with an almost inhuman speed, as we see when Halle Berry is hanging out of a second or third floor apartment on an air conditioner that's about to give, and he goes up the stairs from the ground floor, breaks into her apartment, and catches her on that ledge in the span of about seven seconds. So, very capable in that regard. He's a master Googler. He was in her apartment for under a minute. Goes to work, Googles the paintings he saw on her wall that he did not take pictures of, and then shows up. At her place of work to you know talk about her art and commend them. And a lot of this goes by what he googled about the paintings he saw. So he's managed to pull enough research together to identify what these paintings were, who painted them, what movements they were from, and you know, basically pack in a little art history course in the span of a couple of hours. So yeah, he's pretty capable in that regard. The other male character that we see is capable at his job. He he does a good job of writing this makeup company. He's an unethical jerk, but that's a choice. It's not a question of ability. So even though these men are very capable, the women frequently and easily run circles around them. And that is one thing I will give this movie. The actual execution in terms of storytelling and being a superhero film is pretty poor. But if you sit down and look at the strength of the female characters, they all pretty much get what they're looking for, with the exception of Sharon Stone, who was stopped only by Catwoman. So ultimately, Sharon Stone is the one who starts killing people, including scientists, including her husband. She frames Catwoman for it because she wants this makeup on the market. This addictive, damaging makeup that causes horrific scarring if you ever stop using it and turns your skin into living marble as long as you do continue using it, as she has been doing for years. Now, she's been using this stuff for years without ending up hospitalized, without the fainting spells, or without any of the negative side effects that Halle Berry's friend Sally has been demonstrating. And when Sally stops using the makeup because Halle Berry forces her to, she doesn't see any of the destructive skin-dissolving side effects that we've been told we should expect. That's one of the areas in which the film just makes no sense. Pitoff is decent with themes, but he seems to be really all about the visual flair more so than the story. He is addicted to color filters to the point that during one scene, it's very tightly controlled. Some areas are lit only in blue, some only in green, some in red, some of them are not well lit at all, to the point where as Catwoman and Benjamin Bratt's character, Tom Lone, are fighting, her lipstick appears to be changing color. So because it's such a bright and vivid red, red is really the only color it reflects. So when she moves into white light or red light, you can see the red lipstick, even though it only stands out really in white light. When she moves into the blue or green, it's such pure blue and such pure green, it doesn't reflect at all. So some shots her lipstick appears black, some shots it appears bright red. That's because he's got the color filters in place, so only certain colors of light are making it onto the film, and because the lighting is so intense that it gives this impression, to the point that it actually drives me out of the film in a number of cases. It's one thing to have that in a circus performance, you'd expect that they'd have powerful lights of particular colors. But when we're looking at the interior of a research facility, or, you know, a penthouse office suite in a cosmetics company, which, if anything, should have nothing but pure, neutral white light as its lighting source. It just throws me out of the film. And that visual style is tied to a particular music style, which again is not necessarily appropriate for this type of film. It starts off with an opening monologue that is a lot of black and white classic art going back through the ancient Egyptian art up to this day with the number of cat images and a number of masked female images. But the music to kick off your superhero film is appropriate to meditation music, and we've got three and a half minutes of this to get things going. We have got an opening monologue in which Halle Berry says, it all started the day I died, because that was the day I started living. And then the story starts a couple of days before that. So when does the story start? Does it start the day she dies, or does it start a couple of days before that, When she's chewed out for messing up a job, she didn't really mess up, and given an extended deadline to midnight the following day. She doesn't die until after midnight the following day. This is clearly supposed to be doing strong female characters, and largely it does that, but some of it is extreme. In the initial press conference, when they announced that Sharon Stone's character will no longer be the face of this makeup company, the board of directors is half male and half female you know, it's nice to see a 50-50 split. You don't often see that represented. Usually the board of directors is filled with middle-aged white men because, you know, that's a disturbingly accurate picture of corporate culture these days. Here it's easy to tell that it's exactly 50-50 because Sharon Stone and all the female executives are on one side of the room and her husband and all the male executives are on the other side of the room. So it sets up male versus female very clearly and very bluntly right off the bat. And in terms of all of this, the whole message of the film seems to be about female empowerment and how you can be your own woman and how you don't need to follow society's rules and let society define you. And yet the entire plot centers on bad makeup. It just, it seems to shoot itself in the foot in that respect. Now, one of the things that I do want to give Halle Berry credit for in this film is the physicality she brings to the role. There's a lot of very well-rehearsed athleticism here that doesn't seem that rehearsed. Before she gains the Catwoman powers, she trips over a blanket coming off a bed and picks herself up like someone who's used to being clumsy. It's not unusual for her to trip over. She just gets up and keeps going because that's her life. And yet after she nearly dies and the cat breathes green breath into her throat and brings her back to life as Catwoman, she does become very agile and very sure on her feet, very confident and Halle Berry does bring that out in her performance. It will give her a lot of credit for that end. And yet, in spite of that, she's still someone who works in the fashion industry and wears the same outfit two days in a row. We see the overnight change with the rocker across the street. We've been told she has until midnight the next day. She's wearing the same clothes the next day, working near the top of a high-end fashion company. She's reporting directly to the, the CEO and president of the company. There are other issues when she's running from the guards who are trying to kill her after she's overheard that bioline, as they call it, which is spelled French Boli, French beautiful, that they're pronouncing Bio. When she's running from the guards after overhearing that this makeup can kill people, she's backed up against the wall in a warehouse, and somehow casting shadows on the boxes across the way. She's not backed up to a light source, and yet they see a shadow that they're ready to open fire at. We've got issues when she kind of foils a robbery and and kind of participates, where the robbers are breaking the glass cases and the glass breaks while their arms are on the backswing before contact is made. We've got oddities in a police department where they can take a look at handwriting with an expert graphologist who says, no, these two samples were written by two different people after Benjamin Bratt recognizes the similarities. The idea being that Catwoman and Patience really are two fundamentally different personalities to the point that their handwriting is different. And yet, in terms of the story logic, it was patients that wrote both notes that were being compared, so there should be no difference between them. They can match lipstick from the lower lip in a photo of when Catwoman kissed Benjamin Bratt, apparently with only lipstick on her lower lip, to patients drinking out of a tumbler and the sample on the glass itself and get a 99.9% match that it's the same person. And yet, when they bring her in for murder, apparently after unloading several bullets into Sharon Stone's husband... In the Catwoman outfit, which has an exposed abdomen, she rushes out, changes clothes, goes home. They catch her a few minutes later. She hasn't had time to really clean up. They bring her in and they can't do a blowback test to prove that she doesn't have gunpowder on her exposed abdomen? How is it that all the evidence points towards her when the most simple police test would point away from her and prove that she wasn't in the room at the time? The movie just feels far too rushed and it was rushed partly because they had to go back and do reshoots. This is a movie where they had to redo a couple of things. The first trailers had pretty miserable response, so they cut a new set of trailers that they rushed out to market that eliminated all dialogue, just had visuals and sound effects. Initial test screenings did not go well, so they did some last-minute reshoots with less than a month before the release, which is why it never came out in IMAX. Because on June June 30th, They announced that it wouldn't be an IMAX, which they'd been advertising for the July 23rd release. There's just so much about this that seems last minute. Now, some of that is in the creative staff. The composer was Klaus Badelt. He was a last minute replacement because of scheduling conflicts with the individuals who were supposed to be doing it before. He did a decent job. Previous to this, he'd done K-19, The Widowmaker, Equilibrium, Ned Kelly, The In-Laws, the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. He'd go on to do Constantine, 16 Blocks, Ultra Violent, the 2007 TMNT CGI film. Respectable credentials, did a decent job, but again, a last-minute replacement. Thierry Arbogast was the director of photography. Now, Thierry had worked a lot with Luc Besson and a lot of other French filmmakers. Most recent release by Thierry is Lucy, which at the time of this recording came out just a few weeks ago. Also did the La Femme Nikita film, Fifth Element, Léon the Professional, all with Luc Besson. So the ones that I've seen that Thierry has done were not bad, but they're all with the same director. So I'm not sure how much was Thierry's involvement, how much was the director's involvement. We've got Sylvie Landre as the editor, Again, she's got decent credentials. She's done The Fifth Element, Messenger, The Story of Joan of Arc, Jet Lag, Sweat, Sound of Thunder, Treasured Island, Hideaways, War of the Buttons. There's some decent work here, but with last-minute reshoots and rewrites, there's a question of how much time she had to do the job right. Much of the work on this was done just very last minute, because that's how the film was put together. They wanted to keep it out for the summer of 2004, and by the time they were close enough to hit the summer of 2004, the options for reshoots were either push it out of summer 2004 and delay it a year, which would mean putting it head-to-head with Batman Begins, which is probably not a good idea, especially since they weren't necessarily intended to be connected properties. In fact, rumor has it that one of the early drafts of the script actually ended with Ben Bratt's character Tom Lone donning the Batman suit and leaving with Halle Berry's character. That wouldn't have worked out well. I do prefer the endings that we have. They actually filmed a couple of endings. There's the original more Hollywood ending where it's happily ever after and Ben Brandt and Patience Phillips, or Halle Berry's character, do end up romantically involved. I prefer the one we get where they help it through. They could very well be together. There's enough of a connection for that, enough trust for that. But Halle Berry just basically tells him, you know what? There's not a lot of room for a woman like me in your world. I need to be my own woman and leaves. I like the idea that she doesn't need a man to define her and she is her own woman to go and live her life the way she wants to. That ending is very consistent with the female empowerment theme that pervades this film. So that part is certainly nicely done. But now the real question, why have we not seen A Catwoman 2? We've discussed movies that weren't very good in the past that still spawn sequels because they were profitable. Right, Show business is largely a business. As long as a movie is expected to make money, you will be able to find someone who's willing to pay to get it produced. Catwoman's total production budget is estimated at $100 million. Now, as we've said before, we need a domestic gross of about two to three times that $100 million in order to be considered profitable by the time you take the gross and divvy it up between the studios, the stars, the exhibitors, the distributors, their money goes to a lot of different places to recover their investments, which means, in order to be considered profitable, Catwoman would have to gross between two and three hundred million dollars domestically. The total domestic gross was forty million two hundred and two thousand three hundred and seventy-nine dollars. Foreign gross was about forty-one million nine hundred thousand. Which means grand total, we're looking at a worldwide. Total gross in theaters of $82,102,379 with a budget of $100 million. This explains why the DVD is so minimalistic. The only bonus features we'll find on that are the bonus features that were had to have been produced during production of the movie, so behind-the-scenes documentaries, deleted scenes, that type of thing. The ones that would have been done concurrently that were effectively already paid for, so you might as well throw them on and see if those bonus features can get you a few more sales. What we don't see are new bonus features that would have to be commissioned, like director's commentaries and that sort of thing. This is a one-disc set. We will probably never see a two-disc set of Catwoman. It just did not pay for itself. I would be stunned if it has paid for itself, even with 10 years of DVD sales to back it up. It's not the worst movie I've ever seen, but it is one of the worst of the major studio releases. Although I must admit, the first time I watched it, I was just watching it as a superhero film. It wasn't until I rewatched it a couple of times for this podcast that I was really digging for what was going on, what they were thinking, how it ties in. And that's when I noticed the strength of the female empowerment portion of the story. So it is not completely without merit. And that's not something I can say about every movie I've seen. But it probably is one of the weakest. It would be a coin toss whether I'd rather watch this or Batman and Robin again. I probably would lean to this just because, you know, Halle Berry does look very good in the outfit. And really, that would be the only reason to rewatch either of these films at this point. But we're not going to end the series on a downer, of course. Join us again next month when we discuss Batman Begins, the first film in the Nolan trilogy, which will take us through the rest of Batman's 75th anniversary and into silver screen superheroes next year. Feedback, as always, can be sent to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. You can also review the series, of podcast that you're hearing on Stitcher or iTunes, or feel free to come over to bureau42.com itself and leave comments as long as it's within 22 days of the original release. So join us on the 14th of next month when we discuss Batman Begins, and thank you for listening.